Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our live broadcast. Today we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Sixes, Sutta 35, Vinja Bhagya Sutta. Vinja, Vinja means knowledge in this case. Um, this, in this case, referring to true knowledge highest knowledge, enlightenment, really. Bhagya, Bhagya means connected with, having a share in, literally means like having a share in, <coughs> but it means like conducive to or leading towards. So today we're looking at the Dhammas that lead to enlightenment, basically. So a little bit of background, or take a step back and talk about something actually, um, something related, but something a little different. We'll take this, approach this from a different angle. What we're practicing is called insight meditation, based on the four foundations of mindfulness. This is something we actually have meditators memorize in Thailand. The Thai meditators, when they come to meditate, we'll have them repeat after the teacher, Vipassana Naineo Satipatthansi. It's Vipassana in line with the four Satipatthana. And then you have them repeat the four Satipatthana, Ningkai, Song, Vitana, Sam, Chit, Si, Tham. One is Gaya body, two is Vedana, feelings, three is Jitta, means mind, and four is Dhamma, which means Dhamma, can't really be translated, but refers to the five uh, hindrances, the six senses, the five aggregates, etc., So the the question is, what do we mean by vipassana? Right, because we describe the four satipatthana, and all of our practice is based around the satipatthana. But what does vipassana mean? It's a good question. I mean, it, why do we call it vipassana? Why don't we just call it satipatthana or mindfulness or sati meditation? Meditation sati. What is the use of the word vipassana, and what does it mean? Vipassana means three things. Well, vipassana means to see clearly. Vi means clearly. Pasana means seeing. Seeing clearly. This is vipassana. So the question really is, what are we trying to see clearly? The answer is we're trying to see clearly three things. With the claim that when you practice vipassana meditation in line with the four foundations of mindfulness, you will see first of all that everything inside of yourself and in the world around you, everything, it's impermanent, uncertain, unstable, changing, chaotic. 
Number two, you'll see that inside of yourself and in the whole world around you, everything is dukkha, suffering, or unsatisfying, not happiness, not a source for happiness. No thing in the world can be a cause for true happiness because it's unsatisfying. And number three, you'll see that inside of yourself <coughs> and in the world around you, nothing is self. Nothing is yours, belongs to you. Nothing has its own independent existence. Nothing belongs to anything. Nothing is you or yours, basically. These three things mean to s what it means to see clearly. And this is the, really the whole of the the, um, the path of insight. That as you practice sati, the insight into these three things will arise, and it'll get deeper and deeper. Your your understanding of this. Now, some of you, I think, understand my take or, or take how our tradition looks at these three things but I think there are still lots of people who hear about this and then have a difficult time understanding impermanent suffering and non-self because they think of it far too intellectually or they doubt or you know if you if you tell someone what to expect it's it's a weird psychological truth that the more clearly you detail what the person can expect, uh, the harder it is for them to actually believe that it's going to happen or, or, or just let it happen. <coughs> because they become filled with expectations and they ruin any opportunity for, for uh, natural experience. So uh, people, will, meditators will often uh, waste a lot of time and energy wondering and doubting about the about impermanent suffering and non-self, or feeling like they're not cut out for it, or they're not able to accomplish the goal of the practice. And so I've done a video on this to to try and um, make clear that. Make make clear the what, what these three I, these three concepts or these three characteristics mean. I think it's called the nature of reality. Uh, I don't remember. There's a couple of them. something to do with reality or experience. The, so the idea was that uh, meditators will often complain. They'll be practicing for a while and they'll complain that. It's not the meditation's not going so well, and so the mind is in chaos. It's, not, it's uncomfortable, and they can't control the experience. And they say, "I just can't hack it. I can't do this. It's just not working." Right? But of course, that's exactly that's an incredible practice. If a person gets to that state, you'll be very happy that they got there, because it means they see impermanence suffering and non-self. Yes, it's not working. That's the point. The point is that the world doesn't work the way we think it does. This is why we suffer. All this time we were wondering why, what's wrong? Why is it that we have to suffer? What is the cause of our suffering? Well, now we start to see the cause. 
not the experiences we have it's that it's our, our our understanding of them is as being satisfying uh, stable when they're unstable satisfying when they're unsatisfying and controllable when we can't control them they don't belong to us So it's not a matter of fixing your practice, it's a matter of changing the way you look at it and learning to let go as you start to see that you can't do anything about it. It's not you, it's not yours, it's not under your control. This is exactly what we expect to happen. It should be chaotic, it should be unsatisfying, it should be uncontrollable until you finally let go of it, all of it. Then you practice much better because you just watch and you're unfazed by the changes and the chaos. So that's a little bit of background, talking about the three characteristics. I think it's a good opportunity to bring them up because here we have the six dhammas that vijja bhagya, that are conducive to enlightenment. And the first three are in regards to the three characteristics. But one reason why this sutta specifically is interesting it's one of the examples where the Buddha relates the three characteristics. So it actually says something else about the three characteristics. <coughs> so we have anicca sanya. Sanya means perception or, or something like that. Recognition. Recognizing something as impermanent. So when you perceive impermanent, you recognize impermanent. That's a very important thing. You know, seeing that, oh, this mind that I thought was stable is unstable. And then this body, this reality, this world, stability is an illusion. Seeing things arise and ceasing, that the only reality is momentary experience that arises and ceases moment after moment after moment. Anicca sanya. But the second one says anicce dukkha sanya, which means perception or recognition of, of dukkha, suffering. But anicce in regards to what is impermanent. So it says that, basically it says that, uh, or one way of interpreting it is to say that we see suffering because things are impermanent. As, as you watch things are impermanent, you realize that they're not satisfying, they're not happiness. You give up the idea that these things could bring you happiness, even pleasure. You see pleasure as dukkha, because it's not sukha, it can't make you happy. Pleasure is something that comes and goes, and ends up being meaningless, pointless, useless. And if you if you cling to it, you, you're disappointed because it changes. You don't end up with any satisfaction or peace. You just end up with more wanting because it's here and then it's gone. And the third one is dukkha anatta sanya. So based on dukkha, we see anatta. And so the idea being that once you see suffering, you let go of it. You give up the sense of trying to control, maintain, keep, or avoid, or fix things. Once you see suffering, you let go of it. 
So anatta is all about letting go. It's how the letting go occurs. Once you cease that something's suffering, you have no desire for it to be. You are yours. You lose any attachment to it, and you drop it. Whenever you experience it, you find no benefit to getting caught up in it, clinging to it, trying to keep it, trying to keep it away. This is seeing anatta in what is dukkha. I mean, this sounds kind of, kind of awful. I think if you just hear about the three characteristics, it sounds like, wow, that's an awful pessimistic way of looking at things. And yeah, I guess it is. It's a, I mean, it's a very negative way of looking at things. I mean, we don't claim that this is a good thing. This is, in fact, considered to be the, the problem. But the wonderful thing is that once you realize this, you really do let go. And you really do find true peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. It's very real and uh, undeniable, unshakable. So seeing these things is actually wonderful. I mean, it's what really frees you. If you think of a person who is addicted to drugs, it's only when they see these three things about the drugs that it's not stable, it's not satisfying, it's not controllable, they're not in charge, that they get scared enough to try and give up the drug. Once they give it up, they feel a lot better. It's the th first three. The, th the, th the last three are are more getting closer to enlightenment, or they're more on the side of the actual enlightenment. So pahana, pahana sanya, pahana sanya means giving up. <coughs> this is when you give up your attachments. You give up greed. You give up anger. You give up delusion. You give up bad mind states, unwholesome, unpleasant, unbeneficial mind states. As a result. Pahana. You destroy or give up or remove through seeing impermanent suffering in oneself. You stop trying to fix things, you stop trying to make it better, and then your mind is free. You give up your attachment to things. Number four. Number five, viraga sanya. Viraga means the absence of desire. Once you give up the thoughts, then all the clinging is gone. But viraga is actually another word for nibbana. So this is the moment where the mind releases. Viraga. Bahana means when you abandon, then you're free. Viraga. Niro and number six, niroda sanya. Niroda means cessation. So niroda is the fruit where you enter into cessation nibbana where there's no no arising and no ceasing only peace so these are the six dhammas that lead to, to knowledge um, technically speaking this all, this all happens Anicca, dukkha, and anatta it happens during the path. And you can look at it both ways, but the last three, they come about because of a, a, a perfect understanding of impermanent suffering and non-self. So as you practice, it's going to become clearer and clearer until eventually you get to the point where you see, just in one moment, so clearly, 
impermanence or suffering or non-self, one of them will become more clear than the other. And based on that, um, it, will, it will be the giving up, pahana, and then viraga, the freedom, niroda, the cessation. And once you've seen nibbana, that's what's understood as vijja here. Vijja means knowledge of nibbana, knowledge of enlightenment. And that changes you, it changes the way you look at the world. Frees you from attachment and clinging. So, not a big teaching tonight, but I thought important to, always important to go over the three characteristics again and remind us that that's what we're aiming for. So once you see that, it's quite simple. To see those things, then the things that you were clinging to, you let go of them. It was interesting specifically about the sutta is how it relates the three. That an, a dukkha comes from anicca and anatta comes from dukkha. So if you're worrying about anatta, it's actually in many... One, one explanation of it is that it, it's the... This is not worth seeing as self. It means that when you see something as impermanent and, you see, and then as a result see that it's unsatisfying, you give it up. Give up any idea that's that's not mine. I don't want that. We lose all desire for it, or all concern over it, in terms of trying to fix it or control it. So there you go. That's the dhamma for tonight. Oh, and again, I forgot to start the recording. Forgot to start the recording notification. Although they were setting up a uh, automation for that, so maybe it's automated by now. Hmm. Hi, Bhante. Are you ready for some questions? I think we are. I am. <laughs> and you can, you can hear me, okay? Yes. I've read that there are four kinds of clear comprehension, one of purpose, two of suitability, three of resort, and four of non-delusion. Are those practical advices, in other words, to actively know and recall the purpose and suitability of an action while, before, or after doing it? Um, yeah, right, so the first three are not what is referred to uh, in Satipatthana meditation. In, uh, in our meditation, it's the fourth one of non-delusion, so it's seeing things clearly. But the other three are clear comprehension in a more mundane sense. I mean, they're very important and useful to teach. So purpose is why am I doing something? You know, what is the reason for doing it? Um, realizing that you're doing something, why are you eating? I'm eating to keep my body alive. So comprehension of that. Uh, suitability, is it suitable to do this? You know, when, when you're going to say or do something, is that suitable? If you're distracted, is it, maybe it's more suitable to sit. If you're um, tired, maybe it's more suitable to walk or drowsy, suitable to get up and walk. Resort is knowing the right place to, um, what is appropriate, where is an appropriate place to be. So knowing where you shouldn't go, if someone invites you to a party, you generally shouldn't go, that kind of thing. 
staying away from situations that are going to take you out of your spiritual path. So, uh, so the first three are more, much more uh, practical, worldly, but worldly in a spiritual sense. I mean, they're more mundane. Only the fourth one is directly related to the path. I mean, yeah, intrinsically tied to practice. And then there was another question. Is there a reason why clear comprehension, sampajana, is within the first foundation of <coughs> mindfulness, the body, in the Satipatthana Sutta? Naively, I would associate it with the mind from hearing the words clear comprehension in contrast to mindfulness of posture, breathing, or repulsiveness of the body. No, sampajanya is in all four. And if you read the Satipatthana Sutta thoroughly, you'll see that. He says, Atapi sampajano satima. These are the three characteristics of mind of a mindfulness practice. Atapi is effort or energy. Sampajano is is the non-delusion, and satima is the recollection, the, the remembrance, and the clear, uh, clear understanding of the object as it is, or the, the reminding of yourself of what it is. So uh, it's in it's in all three, but you have the Sampajana Baba, which is just a group or, or just a a uh, set of teachings about the body that use the word Sampajanya. It's just using that word. What it's really talking about is you you use mindfulness when you Saminji Day Pahari Day you extend or Saminji Day and I think I can't remember all the words, but it's like. Uh, When you're walking forward, walking back, adi, kamati, something about that. Three other words. When drinking, when eating, when urinating, uchara pasava karane, something like that. When urinating and defecating. One bright one is one who sampajanakari hoti. One is one who who cultivates sampajanya, clear comprehension. It's just it's actually just a, a sort of a ohara, a mode of expression. He's still referring about my practice, but he's just detailing the uh, what are called the iriyapata, chula uh, iriyapata, minor postures of the body, minor movement. So by extension, everything you do, every movement you make, being mindful. What are some good books to read to help advance knowledge of Buddhism for someone who already knows the basics? I'd read the Buddha's teaching. I'd read the suttas. Get them all. Uh, you can get them from wisdom publications. The Discourses of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Bodhi, mostly Bhikkhu Bodhi's translator. Uh, I would read The Way of Mindfulness in that last question. That's a good book. <laughs> it's on the internet. There's a link to it. Anything by Mahasi Sayadaw. That's what I would recommend personally. 
You could also read, there's a book we just got. Uh, Great Disciples of the Buddha. Is that on camera? Hmm. No, uh, it's got a little glare on it. There you go. Great Disciples of the Buddha. I mean, that's not as immediately useful, but if you're a real Buddhist, then it's a must-read, I think. You know, if you got the time, it's not a must-read, but it's the kind of thing that if you want to really get a feeling for Buddhism as a Buddhist, it's good to learn about the saints, so to speak, you know, the, 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 the hagiographies, that's what that is. When I just began my meditation, my <coughs> meditating, my first to realize thought by emotion. For example, I have thoughts that the bottom line for them is an emotion leading to a defilement. For example, if I'm feeling insecure, I begin to plan ahead for gaining more spiritual influence over people or being in a status that is overpowering others, which is exactly greed and in general. I believe that it's just my emotions or defilements that trigger any thought, at least in my case. So when realizing this, while meditating, finding a, a source, would one say, feeling, feeling? I imagine you would say that I should have stopped at thinking, thinking, but it isn't, but isn't that not really true since that is just acknowledging a consequence and not the source of thinking? Okay, let's pull this apart. Um, I believe is a very bad statement. Don't go with that. Whatever you believe is useless. It doesn't mean anything to us. Um, it's in fact not true that defilements always trigger thoughts. Thoughts can come from all sorts of causes. They can come from indigestion. Um, and they may sometimes be caused by or part of the cause will be a defilement. But don't go ever by belief because you're conjecture, it's conjecture and that's not useful for us. We don't care about conjecture. We only want to see the nature of things as they are. And so that leads to the second point is that you say, well, meditating, finding a source. Now, I hope that I never in my booklet explain meditation as a practice of finding a source. That's not what our meditation is. When we talk about meditation on this side, sight and has nothing to do with finding a source. Meditation is about, as I just explained, using the four foundations of mindfulness to understand that things are impermanent things, and by things I mean things that arise here and now, in the present moment, are impermanent, unsatisfying and uncontrollable. So our object will always be the thing that is arising and ceasing in the present moment, not its causes, not its effects, will always be that thing. Now in the beginning you do see cause and effect. That's the very beginning of the practice. You'll start to see uh, what leads to what. <coughs> and you'll understand karma. But as the practice progresses, it's much, much more about just seeing things in the present moment as they arise and cease. There will be a lot of cause and effect that you'll see. You'll see this causes this, this causes that. That's not the practice. The path is to see things arising and ceasing. Um, and so... When you think of something, you should say thinking, thinking. There's no going beyond that. If you think that feeling is what caused it, um, that's just more thinking. So when you ask, um, if you think something, 
I assume you're referring to a thought, and if uh, if a thought arises, what you're to do is to say to yourself, thinking, thinking, because it reminds you that that's just a thought, nothing more, nothing less, with no reference to the cause of it or what may have caused it, etc., etc. You would never ever say feeling, feeling, because that's not what you're experiencing. That has nothing to do with what's currently on your mind or currently in your realm of experience. That would be wrong practice unequivocally. That would be related to the past. So it would be wrong mindfulness, which I have to give a talk on next June and I'm still not 100% sure what they're expecting from me that talk. The idea behind noting is to, so that we avoid reacting. That's all we're trying to do is to remind ourselves it's just that. It's not good, it's not bad, it's not me, it's not mine. It is what it is. And that'll help us to see it clear, more clearly and eventually understand there's nothing worth clinging to. Is there a relationship between faculties and the object of focus? For example, after focusing more on pain, I feel as though my effort has increased, and focusing on abdomen breathing seems to hone my concentration. Is there a correlation between them, or is there some place to read about it? No, there's no correlation, not in that way. I mean, there would be a correlation probably in terms of how you perceive them and how you are meditating on each of them. And so we apply our mind differently out of habit. I'd have to say out of... Out of uh, lack of, of proficiency because as you get better at it you'll see you're able to note everything in the same way and it improves your faculties in the same way if one of them is, is giving you more of one faculty than another it's generally a sign that there's a bit of a, for lack of a better word, bias in regards to each of the objects which is normal, it's natural because you're still learning how to be mindful but eventually no, you should see that uh, you're able, the, the same result comes from noting everything I mean, it's a messy practice. Okay. Y you may find tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month that it's the exact opposite, that when you note the rising and falling, you get more effort, and when you note something else, you become more focused. Hopefully, eventually, you'll feel that you're just getting more mindful and more clear and more natural by noting all of them. In which of the four elements do subtle energy, chakra-type sensations fall in? We don't use the word chakra, that has no meaning to us, but uh, subtle energy. <coughs> That's really a good question. Some of it might be mental. Really good question. I don't know. I mean, it falls under the falls under the heading of a sensation. That's it. But since it's very, very subtle, it'll be hard to determine which of the four it would be. If I were to guess, hmm. I wouldn't even guess. It's just a feeling. Just a feeling. It's a good question. Good, good speculative question, which is, makes it not a very good question at all. <laughs> Just say feeling, feeling. 
Regarding tonight's talk, could you elaborate more about how the last three perceptions arise? On my translation, it says perception of abandoning dispassion and cessation. My difficulty is that it's hard for me to develop samweka regarding phenomena. Um, right, so I thought I'd kind of, I guess I wasn't that clear about it, but um, when you see the three characteristics, you abandon and if you want to get a deep, if you want to get the Buddha's words on what these mean, you go to the Girimananda Sutta, uh, Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Tens, Sutta number sixty. Definitely worth a read. Everyone should read the Girimananda Sutta. So, um, perception of abandoning it refers to abandoning unwholesome mind states. So that comes about because you see that things are not worth fussing about. You see, it's not worth getting upset about things because they're impermanent suffering and non-self and because of that there is this dispassion which is um, you know, the result of letting go the result of abandoning and then the result of abandoning is cessation so I mean you could say in a mundane sense this occurs throughout the path but technically it's probably referring to the last moment where you finally see impermanent suffering and non or non-self quite clearly at least one of them quite clearly, and there's a, a release, you know, the mind recoils or, or lets go, stops uh, chasing, and uh, as a result is dispassionate and cease their experience with cessation. And as far as, I don't, it doesn't really relate to developing Sangwega. Sangwega would come because your meditation is, is difficult and shows you how messed up your mind is. So in regards to this sutta, it would come when you see impermanent suffering and non-self. You'd realize that you're really messed up in the way you look at things, and it would encourage you to see things more clearly until finally you saw, really, that it wasn't worth clinging to the things that you cling to. So it should come through meditation practice. The suttas talk about guarding the sense doors. Is this basically doing mahasi while going about your daily activities? There are different ways to guard the senses. I think you can. I think you can read in the Visuddhimagga for a more detailed explanation. And, you know, if you ju just by looking down, you're guarding the senses, right? It's a physical guarding. You can guard them through concentration. If you enter into the jhanas, then you don't see or hear or smell anything. <laughs> but through, medita through uh, meditation, I I through mindfulness is another one. Um, through wisdom is the ultimate way. So if you're doing Mahasi meditation, you know, if you're doing mindfulness meditation while going about your daily activities, then you're guarding the senses with mindfulness. But guarding them with wisdom is once you've done that enough, eventually you attain Nibbana and you become an Arahant and then wisdom guards them. So there's many ways of guarding the senses and uh, you know you have to remember that the suttas well first of all the suttas are a bit seem a bit standardized that it may not have been exactly what the Buddha said it may have been I mean I don't know either way there's certainly a lot of skepticism about them but regardless um, the Buddha was teaching to different audiences and so that's why this sutta that we just looked at tonight it seems to me 
It's just one way of, of talking about things. And you get that a lot in the Anguttara Nikaya. There's very you know, similar suttas with just a slight twist. And most likely, if these were taught in this form, you know, they would have been taught to specific audiences who needed to hear that. So you don't ever take any, uh, any teaching too dogmatically as meaning this or that. Right, so if you hear about the Buddha talking about guarding the senses, well, he might have mean he might have meant different things at different times, and often he'll leave it open to interpretation because he wants to allow people to understand it in their own way, being at different levels and at different stages. But uh, but yeah, I mean, a much shorter answer would be to say yes, absolutely, guarding the senses—that's the best way. Be mindful when you see, say seeing, when you hear, say hearing, when you smell, smelling, when you're going about your daily activity. Alright, so that's it for tonight. There was one more question. Oh. I don't know if you... I don't see it. Okay, it, it just went off the page, but it said, what do monks do for fun? Oh, well. Oh. That's not a good question, is it? Monks don't... We frown on fun. <laughs> <laughs> fun is not. <laughs> We're talking about... Uh, I was talking with Grace, Grace Ann, this woman who's in, who we talk about God and religion. She's having some trouble, and so we... Um, we're talking anyway. We're, we're talking about various things, and she said, uh, "She said, well, you know, Buddhism has the girl problem. She, says she likes she likes Buddhism, but it has the girl problem." And I said, "Well, there are girl Buddhists too." And she said, "Yeah, yeah, but Buddhism, you know, it, it, girls are inferior in Buddhism." And I said, "Well, no, I mean, not not in my Buddhism, girls are not any less." Or she said, they have, are, "Are worth less." And I said, "In my Buddhism." Girls aren't aren't don't have less value. I said, in my Buddhism, everyone's worthless. <laughs> <laughs> and she hates this because she's one of these God people who believes that we're all special and precious, and life is precious, and God is precious. And well, human life is precious. I I know you've rubbish. Human life is said rubbish. many the. Uh, well, the chances of being born human are low, so, so we shouldn't waste our human life. You want to play roulette for a bunch of crap? Go ahead. Could be a dung beetle next time around. Well, that was easy. That would be worse. Object. So we have to make. <laughs> well, that's just—it's just a convention. You know, yes, being a yeah. human is conventionally better, but in an ultimate sense, it's worthless. But that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you have to hate it. It's just there's you know there's no intrinsic value, it, I mean, and it it sounds bad. It sounds like a negative judgment, but it's not. It's just a, 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 a letting go of any any valuation. And there's no value. Value doesn't more like value doesn't even come into play because what does it mean? What does it mean to say something is valuable? Yes, conventionally, there are a lot of valuable things. For a meditator, there are a lot of valuable things. Human life is valuable. Meditation, of course, is valuable. Morality is valuable. Good friends are valuable. All that's valuable. But in an ultimate sense, it has no value. That's just the point. 
it's just a word, it's just a concept that we give to it, we apply to it uh, provisionally because for an arahant, which is the ultimate point, for one who is enlightened there's no need for anything, nothing has any value to it you can't say, oh this is worth, this is useful, it's not there's no, there's no, you have no use for anything you have no goals to attain, so so I guess provisionally or conditionally useful, yes, absolutely. But uh, we're just talking on two different levels, that in an ultimate sense, nothing has intrinsic value. So to say you're special, I'm special, I mean, it's problematic because it leads us to attachment and clinging and concern over our bodies and so on. It leads to attachment, ego, conceit. Low self-esteem, high self-esteem, all sorts of problems. Okay, I'm going to go. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks, Robin, for your help. Have a good night. Thank you, Bhante. Good night.